You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Luke chapter 15, you're going to need a Bible there. And let, let me just go ahead and say this um, real quick too, that if I, I'd love for you just to get in the habit of bringing a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those underneath chairs. Um, we've got one underneath every three or four chairs, something like that. And so if you don't have a good Bible, feel free to grab that. But I'd love for you to be looking down at your Bible as we read this. Um, I think it's good for you and it's good for, uh, for me. And so, uh, so make sure you're, you're bringing that. So we are in Luke 15 and we started last week in the longest and last of the parables in Luke 15, um, the parable of the prodigal son. And we started um, last week by, by watching him in his open rebellion run from God. So if you're looking down verse 12, we see that um, he demands his share of the inheritance. This is essentially him saying, um, Father, I wish you were dead. Like this is our picture of sin in, in this story. That sin is pictured as running from God and sin is pictured as a young man looking at his dad and saying, plan A is you would die and I would get the, the inheritance. Plan B is I want your stuff, so just give it to me now. Cash it in, gather it up and, and give it to me. So, so you see this picture right off the, the get-go of sin. And so, and we see this path that he's thinking, you know, and we see his self-talk. And imagine that self-talk that he's thinking here. He, he gathers his stuff, he walks out the door, he's thinking this is, this is life for me. This is going to be freedom. This is going to be the satisfaction I've always craved and always longed for. And then we get to verse 13, and here's what it says. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. Excitement and expectancy filled the air. But look at the last half of verse 13. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. In a matter of nine words, his wealth has vanished. In a matter of nine words, the glitter of the far country, he, he is starting to realize that there is no gold there, right? I mean, he, he is starting to see through the seasonal satisfaction of sin. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. I'd encourage you to, to maybe underline that word famine. Um, I, I'm amazed at the, the overlap. For those of you who are here, as we went through uh, Jonah, we spent eight or nine weeks in Jonah at the beginning of the year, but there is great overlap between this, the, this story, the prodigal son in Luke 15 and Jonah. If you'll remember back to Jonah chapter one, right off the get-go, you see God appear to Jonah, speak to Jonah, and Jonah rebel against God. He boards a ship to Tarshish, and you remember what God does? It says the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. He literally sent a hurricane to come crashing into the ship that Jonah's on. The sailors are trying to figure out like, who's to blame for this thing? And they roll dice and it just happens to fall on Jonah. I mean, this is, this is turning it from like bad to worse here. And so, so it lands on Jonah. Jonah is the culprit. They throw Jonah off the ship into the sea. He's sinking to his death. And it says the Lord appointed a great fish and it swallowed Jonah. Can you imagine, seriously, if you were Jonah, what you would be thinking? I mean, that is a, come on, are you serious type moment, right? I mean, that is that moment where you're just looking and you're asking anybody around you, can I just get a break in this thing? And, and, and so it's interesting when you're looking at it from Jonah's perspective, this is his feel for what's happening. But as you read Jonah chapter one, the narrator gives you an inside track here. He's showing you that this isn't just random kind of circumstances colliding on Jonah. That this is the pursuing grace of God running after our man, our rebellious prophet. 
Sin in Jonah is pictured as Jonah running from God and grace is pictured as God pursuing and running after Jonah. And it's just interesting in the first chapter of Jonah, you see the grace of God take on surprising forms. You see the grace of God look like a storm. You see the grace of God look like dice that says Jonah is the man. You, You see the grace of God look like a fish that swallows Jonah. See, I mean, the grace of God in Jonah 1 takes on a surprisingly painful form, doesn't it? One um, author kind of commentating on Jonah 1, he says, this is the tender violence of God. This is God doing whatever it takes to get Jonah to the end of Jonah. This is God literally harnessing the forces of nature and making those things collide on Jonah to get Jonah to the end of himself, to save Jonah from Jonah, to, to make sure Jonah's at the end of his rope and at the beginning of God. And so I, I think there's this, this, this neat overlap when you get to Luke 15, as we see um, the, the prodigal son, he's in the far country, and wow, he squanders his, his money, all, all of his inheritance, and there just happens to be a famine that has hit the land. Just happens to be that, right? And, and so now when you read the word famine, it's hard for our 21st century eyes to get a grip of what, what's happening in that word famine, how, how a first century hearer would, would hear that. And like, for instance, um, we're in a really dry, we're in a drought right now. It is super, super dry. Um, I heard somebody say the other day that it is more dry now than it was in the 1930s during the Dust Bowl. But we, we, we're not overly aware of that. I mean, we're aware that it's dry because it's been 100 for like four years straight outside. But, but apart from that, we don't think a whole lot about it being dry. And so we, we don't have a thought. I, I bet you haven't had this thought yet. I wonder if Brookshire's is going to have food when I go in there. You probably haven't had that. But I'm telling you, 150 years ago, at this point in a drought, your cat would be looking pretty good right now. That would be a pretty appealing dinner to you tonight. Okay, listen to these words from a biographer as he uh, describes what a drought and a famine look like in medieval Europe. So this is four or 500 years ago in Europe, what, what a, a famine caused. He says this, the years of hunger were terrible. The peasants might be forced to sell all they owned. In the hardest times, they devoured bark and roots and grass, even white clay. Cannibalism was not unknown. Strangers and travelers were waylaid and killed to be eaten. That's a bad day right there. I mean, that, that is severe. Okay, look what it goes on to say here. And there are tales of gallows being torn down. As many as 20 bodies would hang from a single scaffold by men frantic to eat their warm flesh. Now, are we getting a picture for famine here? This is not, I missed my cereal this morning, right? This is, we are about to die. See, this gives a new perspective of what the prodigal son is saying. When he says that, when, when Jesus is saying that he's in need, it is saying our man is in serious, serious circumstances. I mean, he is in dire straits here. And here's what I want you to see. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that, that all this, this whole famine thing is brought about by the pursuing grace of God. I mean, there, there is no doubt when you start reading the scriptures, that it is God who controls rain and it is God who controls the famine. It is God who does those things. Those things are not outside of his sovereignty. And we see in Luke 15, kind of this similar picture to Jonah, where God is harnessing the forces of nature to get our prodigal to the end of himself. Where, where, the, where the tender violence of God is pursuing our prodigal. We see this, this tender grace of God, this tender violent grace of God that, that is unrelenting in breaking the back of our prodigal's rebellion. So this is what you're seeing. When you see that word famine, this is the grace of God on the move here. Now keep reading with me. Verse 15. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs, both of which are unthinkable for a Jewish man to do. He's hired himself to a Gentile and he's feeding pigs. Both are off the chart bad for a Gentile. Verse 16, but his despair deepens here. And, And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. I mean, our man thinking that gold was going to be found in the far country, he wakes up and he is in a pigsty and he is literally starving to death. I mean, you you get this sense that, that when you get to verse 16, he's got one hand in the trough and he's about to let it rip, right? This is what we see in verse 16. Now, here's how the next scene of the story goes though. Uh, When we get to verse 17, our man is about to repent. We're about to see a picture of repentance in our man. We're about to see a picture of what it looks like for a man to be caught by the grace of God and to respond by that grace of God by repenting. And and here is really my hope for you today. We're going to walk through this together. And and my hope for you is that God would deepen your and I, our church family's understanding of what repentance is. And secondly, that maybe for some of us today, by the grace of God and the goodness of the Spirit of God, that we would be humbled in our sin that God would gift you with repentance, a returning to him. And that maybe God would do that for you today, for us today in this room. Okay, so, so here's where we're gonna start. I wanna give you some, some 30,000 foot statements and kind of thoughts on repentance. So some 30,000 foot thoughts. Here, here's the first one. Let's talk about repentance and its importance throughout the scriptures. I was thinking about this this week that um, in two years of preaching here, I think I've preached on repentance four times and Dan's preached on it once. So that's five times in four years. That, that's a lot for any one particular theme, right? And so and I, I want you to see that there's a reason for that. That reason is not because we find it in a story like this in the scriptures, but because you find it everywhere in the Bible. That the theme of repentance is looped in through, weaved in through Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's everywhere. If you go to the Old Testament, the Old Testament word or the Hebrew word for repentance is shub. You see that word mentioned over a thousand times in the Old Testament. When you get to the New Testament, it's everywhere there too. When when the New Testament opens, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first thing you see is John the Baptist on the scene. And what is he preaching? He is essentially preaching a message of repent. The kingdom of God is here. When when you see Jesus jump onto the scene, what does his message sound like? His first words in in, uh, the the gospel of Mark, Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is everywhere. Jesus' last words in the uh, the gospel of Luke, he's looking at his disciples and he looks at them and says, "Um, okay, so, so here's my final charge to you. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins, that needs to be preached to all the nations. See, this is a continual theme throughout the Bible. If you go to Acts, you've got Peter's um, sermon at Pentecost. Do you remember what happens at the end of that sermon? The Holy Spirit cuts those, that, that crowd, cuts those people to the heart. And they look at Peter and say, what must we do? And you remember his response to that? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. See, repentance is this theme that weaves throughout Scripture. Repentance is the way prodigals get home. Repent, now listen to this. Repentance is the only way for, for a prodigal to return home. It, it is the only way to a right relationship with God. It, repentance is the only way for your sin to be blotted out, for your sin to be covered, for you to be reconciled and redeemed, for you to be rescued. It is the only way for that to happen. That's it. Repentance is it. A, a repentance, a turning toward God. Now listen to these words from Martin Luther. Luther was... Uh, 
Uh, Luther was the guy that God used to start the Protestant Reformation. And he started the Reformation by, by nailing these 95 theses on this church in Wittenberg. And I want you to listen to the first of those 95 statements that he nails onto this door that sparked the Reformation. Here was statement number one. He said, when, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, and he did a lot. He said, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. That the whole of the Christian life. See, the definitive mark of what it means to be a Christian is that you have repented. That's the definitive mark, that you have repented in the past and that you are repenting in the present. See, and Luther's saying that's not a one-time thing. You, you don't just become a Christian by repenting and stop repenting. You become a Christian by repenting, by responding to God in faith, and, and, you, and you keep, like God keeps sanctifying you. He keeps saving you. He, he keeps working grace into you by you continually repenting. See, repenting is not a one-time thing for a Christian. It is a lifelong thing. What it means to be a Christian is that you are a continual repenter. That's what it means. I love how Spurgeon says it. He says, since we never leave off sinning, we can never leave off repenting. It's a continual thing in all of our life. Now, now this is what concerns me about repentance. Is it so seldom preached in churches and it's so seldom practiced among people who call themselves Christians. So I think it's ironic that um, a lot of, I think a lot of Christians have this view of like sanctification, their growth in grace, their growth in Christ's likeness, that, that how you measure your growth in Christ's likeness is the lack of sin in your life. And I don't think that's the best way to measure your growth in Christ. I think your best way to measure your growth in Christ is by what you do with the sin that's in your life, by you continually repenting. See, if you want to measure the growth in grace that, that you've experienced, ask yourself the question. Look at the urgency, the consistency that, that you repent, the depth of which you repent. So, so maybe we could just start out with a question this morning. Is repentance a continual theme in your life? Has that happened past tense? Is that happening present tense? Are, are you continually repenting before God? Maybe I could say it this way. When is the last time that you have seriously gotten on your face before God and repented? This is the definitive mark of what it means to be a Christian. If you want to see evidence of the grace of God and the spirit living in and dwelling in and tabernacling, tabernacling in your heart, if you want to see evidence of that grace, look at your repentance. And listen, maybe this should just automatically get us examining our heart this morning. If we do not see continual repentance in our life, Maybe it should be a moment where we sit back and say, does the spirit of God live in me? Is the grace of God collided with me in such a way that I'm saved by God and dwelt by God? So, so repentance is a central theme throughout the Bible and it's a central theme in what it means to be a Christian. Repentance and its importance. Okay, so let's, let's define repentance. Here is repentance defined. What it means. I'm, I'm going to enlist some of my favorite theologians to help us out here. First one's J.I. Packer. Still living, one of my favorite modern day guys. He, he says it this way. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. 
Repentance means that you're turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. See, repentance is growing in your awareness of of how sick sin is, how prone you are to it, and how satisfying God is. This is repentance. This is what spurs on repentance. Repentance is a total change of heart in the way you feel about sin, yourself, and God. This is what repentance is. And when we say heart, that is a comprehensive term. When we say heart, that, that encompasses your mind, your, your emotions, and your will. So when we say a total change of your heart, we mean that now you start to think differently about sin, yourself, and God. That you start to feel differently, emotions, uh, about sin, yourself, and God. That you start to do differently, your will, uh, how you treat yourself, sin, and God. See, it's all of those things. It's a comprehensive change in all of that. Spurgeon says it this way. He says, repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, a heart level, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what he once loved. See, this is repentance, that your heart is so changed in how you view God and how you view sin, that what you once loved, like a prodigal, what you once loved, now you, you see is sick. And what you once hated, the father, now you see is satisfying. Like, I like how one author said it. He says that essentially repentance is exchanging irresistible sin for an irresistible savior. This is what repentance is, and this is what it looks like in us. And maybe just the classic definition, I'll just use this one for us this morning. Repentance is a turning from sin, a wholesale and comprehensive change, a forsaking of sin. And in faith, it's turning toward the Savior, turning toward God, toward Jesus. This is repentance. It's turning toward that, being sick of that, and turning toward a satisfying Savior. Okay, one one other thought from a 30,000 foot level. And I want you to see this. I want this to be clear in you as you think about this. But repentance is always in response to grace. Repentance is always in response to grace. It's always initiated by God. It's always initiated by grace. Okay, so let me just ask you this question when it deals with um, what we're about to see in the prodigal son. We're about to see him turn from his sin and turn toward the father. We're about to see him repent. And now if I were to ask you the question, why is he repenting? What made him repent? Like, what, what, what's the deal here? Like, what, what's underneath the surface? Why is he repenting? He, here's what I hear a lot of people say in response to that question. That the man has hit rock bottom. That's why he's repenting. Okay, so I, I want to make sure we're cutting through the clutter here. First of all, there is no such thing as rock bottom. That, that is a myth. There, there is no such thing. See, you could say rock bottom is the pigsty for him, but listen, that is not rock bottom. It could have gotten a lot worse than a pigsty. He could have woke up, found himself sold into slavery. He, he could be thrown in prison. He could have like his fingernails one by one torn off for the next 10 days. He could be dipped in tar, lit on fire, right? He could have his eyes got gouged out. There, there's a lot worse that could have happened to this guy, right? See, so rock bottom is, that's just a myth. It, it's, there, there's no such thing. Every time you think there's a rock bottom there, you see that that's just a thin veneer. That, that's more like glass than rock that you can bust right through. Like rock bottom is a bottomless abyss is what, what that whole thing is. So that, that's first of all, there's no such thing as a rock bottom. But here's the second thing and probably more important thing is that rock bottom, like a pigsty, there is no power in a pigsty. Now, are, are we seeing that? 
That there is no power in our young man waking up and being in need. There's no power in our man waking up with one hand in the pig trough. There is no power in that. For every person that finds himself in the pigsty, that, that turn, like our prodigal turns toward God in faith, there's another one who turns away from God with a harder heart. So, okay, you see that? That God has a lot of ways to bring about repentance. He has a lot of ways at his disposal. In, in uh, 1 Samuel, when he's confronting David, he uses a conversation. In, in uh, Acts chapter 2, with the crowd that Peter's preaching to, he uses a sermon. In this situation, he uses circumstances. But here, here's what I want to just make sure is clear in your thinking. Because when, when I hear people pray for prodigals, I, I sometimes hear a real hope in a way that God might bring it about. So if God can just put them in a pigsty, if God can just bring a set of friends that will have that conversation, if they can just hear this sermon or podcast this thing, if, if they can just do that, then repentance will happen. And listen, I just want to direct your hope in the right place as you're praying for prodigals. Our hope is not in the way God might bring a prodigal home. Our hope is in a God who actually does the bringing home. Amen? Our hope is in a God who actually tracks down and pursues and catches prodigals. Our hope is in a God who breaks through rebellious hearts. That, that's our hope. Our hope is in grace melting a heart of stone. See, like this morning, I have such great hope for us in this room that maybe, maybe God might do that here. But listen, my hope is not in a decent sermon. It is in a great savior for you. That, that's where my hope is. So as we pray for prodigals, as we pray for ourselves, let's make sure we're directing it to God, the God of grace who breaks down rebellion, who breaks through hardness. Amen? Okay, last thing, and this is where we're going to kind of camp for the rest of the morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 makes it very obvious that there is a difference between remorse and regret and repentance. That there's a difference between those two things. That you can be very sorry about your sin. That you can be very sorry that you got caught in it. You can be very sorry about the pain that it's caused. You can do all of that and not be repentant. And, and so here's where I, where I want to finish. I want, I want to finish by working through in this passage some of the marks of genuine and real repentance that we see here. Like, like what are repentance and some genuine marks? Like how, how do we know that we are really repenting in such a way that the Bible would say that that's authentic? that that's right repentance, that that's not just regret, remorse, that is actually repentance before God. Okay, so there's, there's four or five of these I want to I wanna walk you through here. And the first, or actually, let's start in verse 17. Let me read this to you and then, then we'll jump in. Verse 17, here's how the story kind of plays out. But when he, the prodigal, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So right off the bat, verse 17, four, four words in there. It says, he came to his senses. One mark of genuine repentance, real repentance. It's always there. You can't repent without this. Is there's gotta be a moment where you come to your senses. Where you break out of sin's trance and you come, you start to see life clearly. And I think there's maybe three different ways that you could think about what coming to your senses kind of incorporates and entails. And one is that we get a new view of ourselves. There's a new view of you. Like when you look in the mirror, you see a different thing than you previously did. 
I'll never forget this conversation I had with the guy. This has been about two years ago. We're sitting across having lunch. And he looks at me and says, uh, Rodney, do you think you're very self-aware? Now, how would you respond to that question? Like, let me just ask it to you. Do you think you're very self-aware? Like, do you think you have good self-awareness? Do you think you see yourself well? And I, I remember this was my gut level response when he asked me. I was a little bit offended, you know, like, how dare you ask that, right? And so after that, here's what I'm thinking though. Self-awareness, yeah, I'm self-aware. Like I know when, when cheese is on my chin. Like I, I know that, right? I, I've got self-awareness down. But, but here's what's got, got us just continued to beat down into my heart is that my gut level reaction of, yeah, of course I'm self-aware, could not be more wrong. It could not be more wrong. I love how Paul Tripp says it. He says, your self-perception is like a carnival mirror. That's what it's like. You, you look into that carnival mirror, you're, you're all doing this. That, that's what your self-perception looks like. That's what it is. In other words, he's saying this, you and I, we do not have self-perception. We do not see each other. Like, see, if, if sin turned into cheese all of a sudden, we would have all walked in wearing a lot of cheese this morning and not knowing it. You know that? That, that you have those sort of blind spots in you? See, I mean, think about our prodigal. He leaves home. He has no recognition that he is wrecking his life, does he? This, this all seems absolutely reasonable to him. See, this is the, this, one of the deceitful kind of angles that sin plays in us. When we're in the middle of sin, it's almost impossible to see how ridiculous it is. When we're in the middle of adultery, we'll actually justify and we've actually kind of connected all the dots into why it's a good move for us. See, when we're in the middle of a, of a gossip type conversation, we've already connected the dots. We've already become our best kind of lawyer. We, we've already tried our case and, and we are found not guilty. This is reasonable. See, when we're like in, a, in bitterness and unforgiveness, when we start holding grudges, we, we convince ourselves that we've got good reason to do that. That we've got sound reason to hold those things. See, this is part of that deceitfulness of sin. Listen to one author describe this situation with David and um, Bathsheba, where he essentially has an affair, kills the husband. Now, now listen to him describe the lack of self-perception in the middle of that sin. He says this, Sin never feels um, like sin in the midst of it. It never feels like sin in the midst of it. David didn't feel like a sinner when he was committing adultery. He felt like a lover when he was committing adultery. Now, do you see the, the difference in those two things? You see what he's thinking in the middle of that? He, he goes on. When he gave the order for Uriah to be killed, he didn't feel like a murderer. No, instead he felt like a general. See, this is how deceptive sin is. So, okay, when, when we... When we walked in here today, I'll guarantee you, you walked in with an ability to see sin in other people much more clearly than you can see it in yourself. In other words, when you walked in here this morning, I'm 100% sure that we all walked in with cheese on our face, but we just don't know it. 100% sure of that. That you have blind spots, that I have blind spots. That our self-perception is not good. And here is the, the first thing that repentance requires. It's this coming to your senses where, where God in his grace helps us see ourselves more clearly. I can't, here was the second part of that conversation of that self-awareness thing. So Rodney, do you think you're self-aware? I'm thinking on the ends, of course I think I'm self-aware. And he looks back at me and essentially says, I don't think you are. And here's why. And do you know what you need this morning? You need a group of people around you that will help in that, that will be instruments of grace for you, 
that, that God will use in your life to, to help you see where you're blind, to help you see what you can't see, to help you see where you have justified sin, reasoned it out. I mean, you, you have sealed your case tight to help you see why that's foolish and why that's ridiculous. So, so see, repentance starts when you start to see yourself like that. I, I love what the prodigal he finally says to his father. I have sinned. See, he couldn't say that at the beginning because he didn't think he had. See, it's not till the end of the story when repentance is starting to happen, where the spirit of God has come in and grown him in self-awareness that he can finally say, wow, all that blind spots, all that lack of self-perception, it, it's becoming more clear now. See, this is where repentance starts. He, he grows a, a new picture of himself, but, but there's more than just a new picture of himself. He grows a new picture of sin. See, for him, sin is no longer a casual issue. See, the run to the far country is no longer a casual thing. It's no longer a, well, they sin, we sin, everyone sins, so who really cares about sin? Answer to that. God really, 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 really cares about sin. I mean, really, he cares about it. And see, what's happening in this man as he is awakened to his senses, he begins to see how serious sin is and how serious sin is before God. He's awakened to that. And maybe it would just be worth asking you today. Do you see sin as that serious? See, I, we've got like this perennial problem. As we're in kind of sin's stupor, we've got this, this perennial problem of just treating sin as kind of trivial, right? I mean, they have the same problems. We have problems. Everybody's got, what? listen, your sin is serious, Maybe to give some gravity to that. Our, our culture hates to talk about hell. I know that. Our, our culture can't stomach that conversation. That God actually created a place that would be eternal punishment, forever severed from the presence of God. Okay, now, now hear this. Do you know the reason God created that? Because that is a picture of how serious our sin is before God. You hear that? I mean, does that bring a little bit of gravity and listen, I'm not talking about your neighbor's sins. I'm not talking about your friend's sin, your spouse's. I'm talking, I'm not talking Charles Manson's sin. I'm talking your sin is that serious that hell was created. I mean, can you feel that? Man, that God would awaken us, give us eyes to see that. I mean, there is all sorts of problems with this man's repentance, but I'll tell you one thing that he gets right is he sees the seriousness of his sin. And when he comes back to his father, he says this, I am no longer worthy, no longer worthy. He, he is growing in his awareness of how serious sin is. But it's not just an awareness of, a new awareness of ourself, a new awareness of sin. There's also a new awareness of who God is. There's a new picture, a new glimpse of God where we start to see him in a totally different light. I mean, think about our man as he left the house. He walks off the front porch without a glance back, right? I mean, his goal was to get away from his rough father. And, and by the time you get to uh, verse 18, look, look at what's happening here. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Look at verse 18. I will arise and go to my father. Isn't this ironic that when he comes to his senses, one of the first things he plans to do is how can I get back to my father? How can I get back? There, there has been a massive reversal in the way he views his father. See, he was once rough and ruthless. That, that's the first part of the story. But now he is, he's, he's all of a sudden gracious and giving. He, he was once stern and severe. 
And, and now all of a sudden he looks at his father and thinks, that is the most satisfying place I could possibly be right now. See, this is what happens when repentance starts to go down in our heart. We stop seeing God as stern. We stop seeing God as, as ruthless and rough. And we start seeing God, listen to this, as ultimately satisfying. We start to see God in this new way where we could not imagine being anywhere but at home. Where we would start to echo with the psalmist that your love is better than life that there is no place that I would rather be than in your temple, gazing upon your beauty, that there's no place I'd rather be. See, isn't that an amazing thing when that happens in a human heart? I I was, um, I think, 20 years old when that happened. It was over about a three-month span for me where, where God started to grow me in an awareness of the sickening nature of my sin and the satisfying nature of God. And I'll tell you, at that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. The direction of life changed. The want to be in the far country versus the want to be in God's house. All of that changed. See, this is where repentance starts. This this awareness of yourself, this awareness of sin, and this awareness of the satisfying nature of God. Man, may God start to work in that way. May God start to, by his grace, make us aware of those things. Mark 1. We start to grow in this awareness. We start to come to our senses. But there's more. Here's Mark number two. Genuine repentance, like real authentic biblical repentance is primarily, and this is always the case, it's primarily toward God. It's primarily toward God. Look at verse 17. I want you to watch who he's primarily repenting to. Like to who, like who is it that primarily gets his repentance? Look, look what it says, verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, this is what he's going to say. Father, I have sinned against who? Against heaven and secondly, before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, our man, our prodigal, he started to uncover really quickly that his, in his recklessness, in his rebellion, in his pursuit in the far country, in his reckless kind of spending of his father's inheritance, of all their money, all of that was not primarily against his father. It was against his father. He was going to repent to his father. All of that's there. He was going to try to do whatever he could to make restitution, to pay for that. But listen, he is realizing that his repentance is not primarily toward his father, that his sin is not primarily toward his father, that his repentance is primarily toward God. Now, are are we tracking with that? That that his, his sin is primarily against God, so his repentance is primarily against God, even when, like the father, he has been really hurt. Like even when there has been damage done to people, that it's still primarily against God, not primarily against people. Do you remember the story of David and Uriah, David and Bathsheba, this whole thing going down where David is on the roof. He sees a woman. He wants her. He gets his servant to actually calls his servant in, makes it, you know, ask a couple of questions about her. His servant in an act of grace says, you know, that girl's married, right? He, he brushes right over it, tells him, tells the servant to go get her. He does, brings her back, has an affair, commits adultery with her. And then the, the Bathsheba, she's pregnant. So in order to kind of keep a lid on the situation, he orders Uriah to be killed in a battle. Now, I would say that's really damaging to people, wouldn't you? M- uh, damaging to a marriage, damaging to a young lady, damaging to a man, cost the man his life. 
But do you remember how David repents in Psalms 51? God, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, does your repentance go in that direction? See, one of my first kind of responses to that whole David and Uriah thing is, are you serious? How can that be against God and God only? Like, how can that even be first toward God with Uriah dead over here? But will you just consider the cross for just a second? See, the cross is a picture of how serious your sin is against God. Jesus did not die on a cross primarily for your sins against other people. Jesus died on the cross primarily because of your sin against God. That that you, in an act of rebellion, you've rebelled against the rightful rule and reign of God, your creator. We live as practical atheists, right? Like we live as if God doesn't exist. A blatant disregard for God. We give God the, the, the stiff arm. Trying to live independent of him. And when you look at the cross, um, that that's a picture of how serious that, is, that sin is toward God. When you look at Jesus, his sinless son that was beat beyond recognition, that's a picture of how serious your sin is before God. And that's why repentance is always first and foremost to God. But when you see Jesus mocked and spit upon, that's sin's primary offense against God. That's, that's your sin. When you see a crown of thorn pressed down upon his head, that, that's the seriousness of your sin before God. When you see him crawling with a cross, that, that's, that's the seriousness of your, your sin before God. When you see him nailed to a cross, left there to die, that's how serious your sin is, is before God. And that is why Repentance is always primarily toward God. Always primarily toward God. Now, I want to just take a second to press this down to a personal level because I think a lot of us need this. One of the things that God has been growing me in just awareness of my own heart and life and specifically the way I repent is how quick I am to repent before people. Um, By the grace of God, um, I've got some people in my life who love to point out sin for me. And so Laura is a great example of that. She has no problem pointing out sin. No problem at all. Um, staff guys are, are a good example of that. They have no problem pointing out sin in me. And by the grace of God, I feel like I've grown in the ability to listen to them, um, to, to hear them out, to try to figure out where that sin is, and to, to, to acknowledge that sin and to make a covenant to, to not sin against them any longer. I feel like that, that God has grown me in grace in that area. But, but you know what I see is strangely absent from my life? And I just wonder if it's absent from yours. Is me in a closet on my knees before God, acknowledging my sin before him and running to him. And so I, I want to ask you, when is the last time you've been on your knees before God? Not, not confessing your sin to a, your wife, to your friend, to people that it's horizontally affected. But when's the last time you, ha, you have gotten before God and said, it is against you and you only that I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven. But when's the last time that's happened? You got a, a memory you can mark down there? A day you can mark down there? An instance? And I, I just have like this sneaky suspicion that for a lot of us, that there's not an existent memory of that. 
And I, I wanna just press this down to make sure we feel the weight of that. Here's what that means. Our repentance is not genuine. It may be remorse, it may be regret, but it's not genuine repentance. It's not a sorrow over your sin, the sickness of your sin before God, where we acknowledge that before him and forsake it as we run to him. So our sin is primarily against God. Our repentance is primarily to God. A couple of more here. We'll speed up. Next one, third one. uh, Repentance requires a return to God. Now look at verse 18. It says this, I will arise and go to my father. I'll arise and I'll go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Then look at verse 20. He makes the plan in verse 18. And then in verse 20, it says, and he arose and he came to his father. Okay, now I just want to point this out real quickly. I think there is a general misconception of repentance that goes like this. Repentance equals me acknowledging my sin before God. That that repentance equals me looking at God and saying, God, I know that I have sinned there, there, and there. God, I acknowledge that. I agree with you in that. But listen, that is not genuine repentance. That is a first step towards repentance when, when God makes you aware of that, where sin is, the seriousness of it. But that is not all of repentance. Repentance takes one more step where it acknowledges that sin before God and then it forsakes it and actually runs to God. See, the Old Testament word for repentance, shub, what it means is a return to God. See, repentance always equals a return. Repentance always equals a forsaking of the far country and a returning. He got up, he arose, and he went to his father. It always equals those two things. A, A forsaking this and a turning toward God, a running to God, a returning to God. And I just wonder if our repentance gets there. If our repentance actually gets to the point where it's not just God, I have sinned, but God, I am coming after you with everything in me. See, this is repentance, a return to God. Fourth thing, two more left. Repentance, okay, now listen, this is, this is huge for us this morning. Repentance cannot be put off. It cannot be put off. See, genuine repentance is not like reserved for the next day or the next month or the next year. Genuine repentance, we grow in our awareness of sin and there is an immediacy to it. Verse 18, he makes the plan. Verse 20, he goes, he actually does it. There, there's, there's like a, an immediate step. He doesn't procrastinate. Listen, the prodigal son does not presume upon the grace of God. He, he does not, he, his thinking does not go like this. Well, you know, but I, but I think I could probably enjoy this for a few more days, a few more weeks, a few more months, and then I'll get all that taken care of. It doesn't presume upon the grace of God like that. It doesn't act as if tomorrow will be easier to repent than today will be. See, he doesn't presume upon the grace. He, if you're presuming upon grace that way, here's what that's evidence of. That you have a, a bad misunderstanding of sin and a bad misunderstanding of grace. See, when, when you think it's easier to repent tomorrow of sin, you show that you don't have a good picture of what sin is, what sin does. See, one of the ways I picture sin is like tape, right? When the first time you pull a piece of tape off of your arm, it pulls hair and skin with it, right? It hurts, it's painful. But the fourth time you peel that off, it has no effect. The stickiness is gone. Like you, you grow callous to it. It no longer hurts. 
See, this is how sin works. Listen to these words from an old Puritan. He says, by delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. You see that? That the longer you sit in your sin, the harder it is to repent of that sin. The harder it is. I love how another Puritan said it. He essentially said, if you procrastinate in, in repentance, you do it at the peril of your own soul. At the peril of your, I, one, another one says that, that it is essentially like pawning your soul to, to the devil. See, it shows when we, when we procrastinate in our repentance, it shows that we don't understand the nature of sin and we don't understand the nature of grace. See, when we presume upon grace, here's what's going on in our mind. We're thinking that, you know, that the same grace that will make us aware of sin today will make Jesus appear beautiful and satisfying today. That same grace surely will be there tomorrow. That same grace will surely be there in a week from now, in a month from now. John 3 paints this picture of grace, that God blows it like the wind. You know what that means? That he can blow it one day and take it away the next. See, when you presume upon the grace of God, it just shows that we don't have a clear picture of grace. The grace is not earned by you. It's not deserved by you. The grace is a God-given gift to you. And, and when God awakens you with his grace to your sin, to his, to his satisfying nature, when God does that, we have to be real quick to jump on that. We have to be real quick to cash that in. I think one of the scariest um, couple of verses in all the scriptures is in Hebrews chapter 12, where it's talking about Esau. You remember the story of Esau? He sells his birthright. And then there's a, there's a day that he is regretful for that. He's remorseful for that. And it says that he repents. And it isn't a genuine repentance, but, but it is a, I'm sorry for these consequences. I want a different kind of outcome. And you know what it says at the end of that? He says, although he sought it in tears, he could not find it. He could not find it. See, when you presume upon the grace of God, you're gambling with life and death. You're gambling with eternal consequences. It's always a bad bet to gamble on grace. Always a bad bet. See, when the grace of God quickens you, makes you aware, brings you to your senses, that is the, listen, that is the moment to repent. There is no putting that off. Because you may find yourself, I like how one author said it, so entrenched in your sin, so bound up and fortified in your sin that a million horses couldn't pull you from it. So repentance, genuine repentance cannot be put off. And we'll end it with this. Genuine repentance is met with the mercy of God. Isn't this a beautiful last turn to the to this story, kind of getting us into the next scene that we'll dive into um, next week? Everyone in the listening circle is expecting the father to get his whip and his rope, right? To get the rocks lined up and literally beat his son to death, to publicly shame his son, to publicly humiliate his son. But I want you to look at verse 20 and what happens as the prodigal returns. And he, the father, arose and came... Uh, and came to his, or he the prodigal, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I mean, isn't that a beautiful picture? That rather than whipping the son, publicly humiliating the son, he runs after the son. He, he grabs the son, he embraces him, he brings him in and he kisses him. 
mean, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of the mercy and grace of God meeting our repentance. Of the mercy of God melting all of our hardness as it welcomes us in. And here is the beauty of what we're going to see as the scene continues. We're going to see, do you know why the father is able to do all that? Why the father does not sit in his, like in his house, making the son kind of beg as he comes back, making him crawl up the steps, making him knock and plead at the door? You know why this father can, can get off the couch, bust through the door and run and embrace his son? You know why he can do that? Because God, as our father, sent his son to a cross. That's why he can do that. Because all the shame that should have been stacked on this prodigal was stacked onto Jesus. All the humiliation that should have been stacked onto this prodigal, all was given to Jesus. The rope and the whip that the prodigal deserved was the rope and the whip that Jesus got. The death that the prodigal deserved is the death that Jesus got. The the reason the prodigal wasn't rejected, the reason the door swung open for him is because Jesus was rejected. The, The reason the prodigal did not get the wrath of the father is because Jesus got the wrath of the father. Do you see that? See, this is a gospel celebration for us. That that when we repent, we get to celebrate. We not only mourn over our sin, but we get to celebrate over Jesus, crucified on a cross, satisfying God's justice for our sin. Making it possible for Jesus, for God to welcome in all prodigals. See, because of the work of Jesus on the cross, because he lived a perfect life in place of our imperfect one, died an undeserving death in place of our deserved death, because Jesus rose from the dead, showing his power over sin, death, and Satan, because God, Jesus did all of that for you and I, here's what every prodigal in the room can be assured of, that you turn to God in authentic repentance and his arms are wide open toward you. You can be assured of that. And may that happen for us today. May God take us there today. May God gift you with that today. Authentic repentance where you experience, maybe for the first time ever, maybe for the first time in months or years, the embrace of your good God. Amen. Let's pray. We're going to respond by singing here in just a second. I just want to give you just a few moments to sit under that. And will you just ask the Spirit of God to help you feel that, that the Spirit of God would press this deep into your heart? Maybe this would be a coming to your senses day that you see yourself in a new light, light, in a new way. That you see your sin with new clarity. You see the satisfying power of God with new clarity. I love what Augustine said, early church guy. He said, uh, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. That God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. This building, I think, is the most dangerous place you could have chosen to be on a Sunday morning. You don't leave here neutral. You don't leave here in the same position that you walked in. You leave here harder to God or you leave here repenting before God. Those are the only two options. And can I just plead with you for a second? Man, if if the Spirit of God is making you aware of sin, 
showing you your blind spots, if he is gracious enough to do that to you today, to give you a new picture of you, a new picture of God, if he, can I just plead with you not to pass on that moment? For our men in the room, the, the, one of the best things your family could see is you repenting before God. For our ladies in the room, one of the best things your sons and daughters could see is you on your knees repenting before God. Oh, that we wouldn't presume upon grace, that we wouldn't minimize sin, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have like a class of sin that is trivial and respectable. There would be no casual dealings with sin, but there would be an absolute forsaking and an absolute turning to God in faith, a return to God. So God, I pray that. I pray that for us today. God, I pray for um, the men and women in the room who have, who have never tasted forgiveness. God, for prodigals who, who have never held up their life and said, God, here I am, all of me. I want to trust and treasure you. God, will you save me? May this be their moment for that. God, by your grace, will you save today? God, will you bring those prodigals home today? And if that's you, I, I'd encourage you to make sure you let us know after the service. You can come down up here in front and catch me. I, I'd love to walk, walk th- you know, through all that with you. And, and for, our, for our people in the room that, that would say, I'm a Christian, but you're in the far country. And listen, can I talk to the self-righteous for just a second? See, here's the ironic thing about the elder brother. His good deeds actually kept him from seeing he needed to repent. He's so self-righteous that he can't see his sin. I mean, he literally thinks he is God's gift to the world. Oh, maybe God would break some of those walls in us today for for our Christian in the room who hasn't repented in months who hasn't gotten on his knees before God and said, God, here is my sin. Thank you for the cross. May that that happen. God, will you do that in us? God, will you work that in us? May we be a repenting people marked by it. It is in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us as we sing? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.